And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. It's the second best day of the week, of course, Thursday, as we get ready to wrap up the week. And uh, Michael Lee was showing this morning to talk a little bit about Jackson Hole, which is this whole weekend. Jackson Hole Summit weekend. We'll hear from Jerome Powell what he's going to say. Also talk a little bit about uh, recent commentary from the likes of Nick Timrose talking about you know higher interest rates potentially as the Fed's talking about that. Well, we'll get into all that this morning. Of course, we can't bypass the big news last night. NVIDIA reporting earnings, not surprising, blowing the doors really kind of off their earnings announcement. And again, stocks can be trading up this morning about 6 7% this morning at the open, maybe a little bit more. Um, interestingly enough, though, and I thought this was uh, an interesting note, they said that their sales are going to grow by 170% annualized, okay? Now, that's take 170%, divide that by four, right? So that's how you get annualized growth. So next quarter will be one-fourth of 170%. Last quarter, they grew sales by 50%, which is 200% annualized. So the growth rate is slowing, but the numbers are big, right? This is, this is the whole thing. So stock will be up this morning. Uh, importantly, the, uh, that, the, there's been, I'll spit this out. <laughs> NVIDIA had, had kind of chopped sideways here for about a month or so. Uh, sold off just a little bit, no big deal here, but got very oversold on a MACD basis. You're getting a buy signal to, uh, really yesterday with that bit of a rally pre-earnings. Uh, the, the rally today, which will now take it above this double top uh, that it's been building here over the course of the last couple of months, um, is now going to complete that consolidation phase of NVIDIA. So now you've got a nice strong buy signal uh, coinciding with the double top breakout. This sets the uh, stock to potentially move up to between 550 and 600. So, uh, you know, there's a, a tradable opportunity here, obviously. Uh, the company's very expensive still, no doubt about that. It's now a larger market cap than JP Morgan. <laughs> so, uh, and it's closely closing into a larger market cap than the entire uh, DAX index. So again, very expensive on its way to being the second largest company by market cap in the S&P 500 is now it's it's if it reaches its projected price targets by Wall Street it will be larger than Microsoft. Uh, so it just goes to tell you kind of what's going on there with with earnings. But again, technically everything looks fine. Um, again, you get a nice little breakout here, tradable opportunity. And again, you know where the upside from this is is who knows, right? I mean, it's a function of, you know, momentum and markets and this AI chase. Valuations still remain very expensive. You're still trading at 30, 40 times price to sales. Uh, but sales and earnings are growing, no doubt about that. So again, just something to kind of pay attention to. This is going to be the driver for the market today. NASDAQ this morning looking to be up about 1.5%. Uh, really kind of all tech stocks are going to rally today. Again, this has kind of been the, the, the movement over the last few days. It's been the mega caps back in lead. We'd seen a kind of a brief rotation in the markets into kind of some of the other areas of the markets, but really over the last few days, it's really back to that tech chase. And again, we're seeing a lot of money flow into those mega cap names. That's driving markets. Uh, importantly, as we kind of look at, you know, kind of where markets are, we got to talk about interest rates because interest rates are a function of, of revenue growth and, and economic growth over time. 
So if, if interest rates continue to remain elevated, that is going to impact what is happening in terms of the economy, which is going to ultimately impact earnings. Expectation right now for by Wall Street for earnings growth is still very strong. Now, interestingly enough, Wall Street has, has been tailoring back their earnings estimates for 2024. So the end of 2024, we were at $228 a share. That's down to 222. So we're now starting to ratchet down those longer end uh, projections for earnings. They're still strong here, no doubt about that, but they are starting to come down. So we're already starting to see very early on these very elevated uh, you know, expectations for earnings into 2024 starting to come back down to earth here a little bit. Uh, and again, if we start to see further economic weakness or a resurgence of economic weakness, that's going to bring those down more. Yesterday, the S&P Global PMI Index was out, and that showed a, a, back, a reversion now back into contraction for services. So again, you know, depending on what economic index you're looking at, it's, it's, you know, everybody's got a different opinion, but looking at the data, there's still this, this underlying churn within the economy of this battle between some pockets of strength, some pockets of weakness. And, and again, it's, it's just kind of hard to make it out. New home sales, as an example, 34% increase over last year. So people are back to buying homes. You know, that's a positive for the economy. But at the same time, you've got a lot of other areas of the economy showing weakness. So again, this is going to be the battle we have to deal with over the course of the next really few months as we head into the end of the year. Um, so, but we'll get into all that. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, markets are rallying right now. Again, we talked about on Tuesday, markets are due for a rally. We're very oversold here. And we were expect, you know, kind of expecting this rally to occur. So this morning, the markets are going to battle with this very close kind of cluster of resistance. It's the 50-day and the 20-day sitting right on top of each other. If markets can pierce through that, so we got to get above 4440 um, on the S&P 500. If we can get above 4440 on the S&P 500, that's going to be clear the way for a retest of the recent highs that we had back in July doesn't necessarily mean that the correction that we're in right now or this kind of period of seasonal weakness is over. But again, this, this rally that we're having that we've been talking about here is now coming into play. The MACD is getting ready to cross back into a buy signal. Uh, depending on the strength of the rally today, that could get us very close to triggering that buy signal on the S&P. Um, and again, we're not overbought yet. So uh, again, as, as we kind of take a look where the market is, the market kind of loaded up for this rally. We got oversold on a relative strength basis. The MACD kind of completed a normal retracement of its normal oscillation during a bull market. So again, starting to see that turn back into a buy signal. That suggests that we should get a move here higher in prices, at least in the short term. Again, we still have some seasonal weakness ahead of us. So again, could just be a bit of chop here, have a nice rally for a day or two, get above the 50-day moving average. The NASDAQ will actually get above the 50-day moving average today. But then we get above the 50-day and then kind of chop along sideways along that moving average for a couple of weeks. And then sets that, that'll potentially set us up for that October, November, December rally into end of the year, which should theoretically take us to a new high for this year. Not, not necessarily all-time highs, but potentially new highs for this year. Uh, again, lots of performance chasing that will happen in the year. See a lot of people pile into stocks trying to catch up with markets. And again, there's a bit of big bifurcation um, continues between, you know, you take a look at what's going on with the S&P 500 
as an example. Big bifurcation between that and what's happening in, in other indexes. I mean, if you take a look at small cap, mid cap, just continually not really making much of an advance here. In fact, if you take, you know, going back and kind of looking at small and mid cap over a longer period time frame, just really has not participated much at all. So really a very concentrated rally in the overall markets. So again, kind of keep your concentration in large caps for now because, well, that's what's working. That's where money's going. So we just have to stay concentrated there for right now. Again, technology stocks overvalued relative to the rest of the markets. No surprise there. But again, it's passive flows still pushing a lot of this into the markets. Again, NVIDIA is going to be the big story for the day. That's what will be driving markets. Um, and again, that's what every, the focus will be on the entire day. <laughs> will just simply be that. Uh, but we'll get into other stuff as we go. Again, when we come back, the, you know, these are the things that we want to look at. Um, but again, for right now, maintain your allocations, maintain your risk controls. Uh, we're still in two months of kind of the seasonal weakness. Um, and again, we'll get a little bit better look once we start to get into a buy signal mode and then potentially start to push back up towards all-time highs, or sorry, uh, towards this year's highs in the S&P 500. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz, talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve, Jackson Hole, what to expect. Um, and of course, uh, you know, these, these ideas about higher interest rates potentially from here, could that be the case? We'll talk about all that right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Real Sanchez Roberts. Uh, Michael Lee Woods joining me as well, talking a little bit about uh, the Jackson Hole Summit. It's the annual mountain retreat in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where the rich and powerful central bankers all join together. And uh, they have this big confab to basically act like pinking in the brain and figure out how they're going to take over the world this year. So every year it's the same. It's the same conference every year. Um, and again, we'll, we'll get a lot of speeches coming out of this. We've had speeches over the last couple of days, you know, going into this conference. Uh, James Bullard um, out with the Wall Street Journal talking about how recession fears have been blown out of the water. Um, of course, James Bullard was one of the longer tenured um, 12 regional Federal Reserve banks, and he had stepped down last month. Uh, he thinks the U.S. economy, I'm going to just quote to you from the Wall Street Journal this morning, he thinks the U.S. economy faces new risk of stronger growth that could require higher interest rates to keep up the fight against inflation in the months ahead. He said... Um, Fed officials um, have raised interest rates by quarter point. He said that he thought he would need to lift them again. He, being Jerome Powell, will need to lift them again this fall. The Fed might have to raise rates even more if the recent economic acceleration continues. And there are certainly some you know, signs that the economy is doing just fine. I mean, we've seen services, uh, the, uh, the ICM services index had ticked up recently. Again, as I noted this, uh, this morning, new home sales yesterday came in up 34% year over year. Uh, existing home sales still kind of tenuous here because, uh, again, if I'm in a house and I've got a 3% mortgage, it's tough for me to sell my house and go to a 7% mortgage and buy a new house. But again, there's people that are doing it. But on the new home front, nothing seems to really be slowing people down that much. We've seen 
some declination in housing, but not to the degree that many of the you know bears last year were certainly predicting. You're talking about another housing crash, and it's going to be another 2008. Um, certainly hasn't been the case so far. Doesn't mean it won't, right? I'm not saying that none of this has happened. It just hasn't happened yet. So this is kind of the baseline for James Bullard view is that, well, you know, economic growth is still strong. Labor markets, you know, the unemployment rate still still seems to be okay at this point. Labor still keeps going along. Um, they did do their first annual revisions yesterday to the data that revised down the employment data by about 300,000 jobs. Not a huge number, but it, job growth has been weaker than expected by a small margin. But importantly, the trend is negative. The trend of job growth is declining, and that's something to certainly pay attention to. So, again, it's a real mixed bag here. This is this is the big debate, right? This is the big thing that's going on is, is does the Fed need to hike rates more? Have they gone too far? That's going to be the big debate this weekend at Jackson Hole. Mike, so what are your kind of initial thinkings that we'll hear from Jerome Powell over the weekend? I think we're going to hear, <coughs> excuse me, I think we're going to hear much of the same, higher for longer, we're not even thinking about thinking about cutting rates um, that his number one goal is to stamp out inflation. And, you know, he, he probably doesn't want to raise rates anymore. He's probably scared of what they've done already. There's no there's no gauge to tell them if they've done too much. It's kind of like uh, if you're out drinking one night, you, there's not a hangover gauge that tells you how bad the hangover is going to be the next day. So, you know, Jerome Powell knows they've had quite a few drinks and still feels fine. And um, the question is, is he willing to keep going? And he, he, you know, every time he talks, he mentions lag effects. So he clearly understands the risks. But the other risk is that they don't stamp out inflation. And I think given the size of the fiscal deficits that you know, the debt outstanding and what they're expecting on the fiscal deficit side, he has no choice but to stamp out inflation. So he's going to be the same Jerome Powell that we've seen, pretty hawkish. We may raise rates one or two more times. We're not even thinking about cutting rates. And, um, you know, I think the big question is, will he address what they call the neutral rate? And I think that's that's kind of uh, Nick Timrose from The Wall Street Journal brought this up. And I think that's going to be a, a point of debate. And basically what that is, is the rate at which interest rates are neutral. They, ne they neither restrict the economy nor stimulate it. And traditionally, that was thought to be around 2%. It's kind of a made up rate. You can't really calculate it. But 2% was kind of that rate. And now there's a couple Fed members thinking it should be higher. And what they're basically saying is that the economic growth trajectory in this country is now higher. <clears throat> so, you know, as we exit the pandemic, the growth rate all of a sudden will start increasing, having decreased for the last 40 years. Uh, you know, we can debate that all day, but I think where does Jerome Powell stand on this? And based on prior comments, and some of those comments are in the Wall Street Journal article, he's not in favor of that. Um, well, I think, so I, think I think you've got to you know really put that into context, though, Mike, because every year from 2008 to 2013, the Federal Reserve always came out with their you know so since 2011, that was when they started this kind of quarterly projections. 
And every quarter, what they do is they publish their projections on economic growth, inflation, and employment. And ever since 2011, and this was under Ben Bernanke when you know he was just coming out of the financial crisis, he says, "Hey, it'll be a great idea. Let's let's publish this uh, kind of our views internally about what's going on." So I started tracking these, and I track these every quarter. So every quarter they publish these. I mark them down, and I take the median of the range, and I just put that into a spreadsheet. And every year since 2011, they have always expected initially. Uh, at the beginning of the year in particular, that economic growth was going to finally break out of the trend. We're going to be above 2%. We're going to grow at 3 or 4% this year. It's going to be awesome. By the end of the year, we're at 2% or less. And this is always the problem is they're always expecting stronger growth, and yet we don't get stronger growth. And this is kind of the problem with Nick Timrose's article, which is this idea that somehow magically we're now going to break out of the bonds of debts and deficits and start creating stronger rates of economic growth because, and only because, looking in the rearview mirror, we've had stronger growth because of a massive flood of liquidity from the government right. that will no longer exist at some point in the future with restrictive interest rates. So, you know, the math doesn't support what they're, what they're hoping for. But again, they always hope for this and they never get it. Right, right. Nothing, you know, I mean, this and this is the heart of the bond market question right now. Are you a bond bull or bond bear? The bond bulls think that the last 40 years of history and, and every driver, every factor that drove economic growth lower for the last 40 years is still intact. The bond bears think that something changed with COVID, with the pandemic, and that all of a sudden economic growth will increase. And, you know, from my seat, at the end of the day, what the Fed, what the government did, what corporations did was add more debt, more debt that government debt will actually have a negative, will actually create negative economic growth down the road. Today, it cre creates positive growth as they spend it, but then paying it back and, and taking that capital away from the market where it can be, in theory, productively invested um, has a negative effect on growth. So, you know, there, there are reasons to think that growth can increase, but there's still more reasons, including demographics, which just continually will worsen here, to think that the trends of the last 40 years are intact. And, you know, it is a downward sloping line if you kind of graph economic growth, but really you see it in tiers. And after each recession, you have a lower level of economic growth than the prior recession. And that's because during each recession, there's a, a surge in stimulus spending. The Fed takes more actions than it did the prior time to, to keep the boat afloat. And that's the bet this time is, you know, this is, the, you know, the, the, the pandemic response, you know, it's a relatively light recession, but the fiscal response and monetary response was massive, much more than we saw in 2008 and 2000. Um, so, you know, the question in my mind is what's really changed? And, you know, until I hear some good excuses that this, that and the other changed, you have to think that the neutral rate is, if anything, less than where it was. And that at the end of the day, interest rates are going to be below where they were or at least where they were before the pandemic. Yeah. And again, it's just the, the, the question is going to be, you know, what causes us to get there? And again, as we take a look at, you know, the economic data, and again, you take a look at the trend of employment growth. Yeah, we're still adding jobs right now, but that trend of growth is slowing. And, you know, this is the one thing that 
I think a lot of economists kind of miss is they always look at the number and they say, okay, well, here's the number. The number is, you know, if take for a good example of this is the ISM index uh, as an example. So services or manufacturing doesn't matter. Uh, so at 55, we're an expansion. At 54, we're an expansion. At 53, we're an expansion. At 52, we're an expansion. At 51, we're expansion. At 50, we're now worrying about a contraction. Well, it's been declining for five months in a row. <laughs> so, you know, the economy's been contracting, but economists look at it as like, oh, well, you're an expansion or, or contraction, and it's this break point to where all of a sudden everything changes. But, you know, what we're seeing in the economic data is we're still, we're certainly seeing economic contraction and even in employment, which should give some concern to the Federal Reserve that they've probably tightened enough at this point, particularly with these latest revisions lower. So, you know, at least Jerome Powell's got that to start focusing on, um, even though he's still worrying about inflation. But I, I think you've got to take a look at a longer term picture of the trend of the data, which certainly, whether it's leading economic indicators or consumer confidence or a variety of others, it's still the, the overall trend remains negative and the outlook remains negative. And, and I think that's going to be the bigger overriding issue potentially for the bond market. Um, going forward, we'll talk about interest rates in the bond market when we come back. You know, it's, it's been a big concern this year. Interest rates so have to go to the moon now. Um, but is that really the case? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. So again, talk a little bit about Jackson Hole. Of course, this big meeting, this is the big confab to have every year. And we'll have a speech by Jerome Powell. And remember this time last year, Markets were rallying very strongly and into the month of August. And, uh, you know, the hopes were the Fed was going to start talking about cutting rates. And Jerome Powell tore up his speech that he was going to give 15 minutes before his actual speech time, wrote a new one that basically just said, nope, we're not cutting rates. And then the market sold off in October, set new lows for the year. And that was the ultimate bottom for the market. Um, but this is where we are again. So a year later, here we are again. The markets are kind of hoping for the Fed to say something positive, like, hey, we're done hiking rates. We're you know, potentially looking at cutting rates at some point. That's what the market is really kind of hoping for, um, which has been the case for the last year, is that you know, each time we head into a Fed meeting, it's always like, is this the time? Is this the time that you know, it's going to be the last Fed rate hike? And now we can start talking about rate cuts. And even projections now are still for 2024 that the Fed will be cutting rates next year. And of course, that would be in response to economic weakness, declining inflation, you know, potentially inflation falling to the point that the Fed becomes concerned about deflation, which is a bigger issue for them than inflation. Um, and so that would lead the Fed to start cutting rates and potentially stopping quantitative tightening, at least, you know, for a moment. 
or you know potentially some other type of crisis shows up you know you have a resurgence of the banking crisis as interest rates you know have remained elevated that continues to weigh on collateral for banks so do do we have another rash of of bank problems coming later this year or first part of next year that's going to cause the fed to reverse course and this is again this has been the big driver underneath the markets is this hope for this return of liquidity but, you know, interest rates have been, you know, remained high. We were about 3.7%, you know, last month. We're a little over 4 now. And, you know, every time we get around 4%, we have lots of, you know, bond gurus come out. It's like, oh, see, we're at 4. Now we're going to 6. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the problem still becomes is that, you know, we have a debt-driven economy. So the higher interest rates go the bigger the break that is on the economy because of all the debt. So again, you know, the big the big concern is has been as of late is that interest rates can only go up from here. Lots of people coming out to talk about the, you know, the bond bears have been just all over the place. But, you know, just fundamentally mathematically is that really the case? And again, this kind of goes back to I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into Nick Timrose's article um, talking about that and and you know, kind of his initial view in his article that he wrote last week about potentially higher interest rates and this has been some of the talk from and basically he's just you know kind of regurgitating some of the conversations from guys like uh, 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 Bullard who were talking about stronger economic growth increased productivity and we're going to, since we're going to have this increased productivity in the economy that's going to lead to you know higher rates of economic growth and of course, the, the the thesis behind this increased productivity, of course, is artificial intelligence. It's going to be the new, you know, it's going to be the new product productivity boost within the economy. And you know, so is this the first time we've seen this? Has, has there ever been a period in history where we had some new invention that came along that was going to dramatically change the productivity of Americans? It's going to make everybody more productive. We're going to produce more, and if we're going to produce more. That means that we're working, right? So how does the economy work real quick? You have to produce first in order to consume, right? You got to go to work, you got to produce something, get a paycheck, then you can go home and buy stuff. So this we have we so the question is, is have we ever had this innovation prior to AI that was supposed to lead to massive productivity boost that would lead to stronger economic growth? And the question is, did it? Did that actually occur? Mike, did that ever happen? The World Wide Web. Right. That was in 20 years ago. We had this massive invention, so to speak, this new thing that will make us so much more productive. Did it make us more productive? In many ways, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, our jobs are much easier today. It's much easier to get information, to buy things, to do things, research, you name it. Right. It's been productive. The productivity growth rate in this country has continued to slip for the last 20 years after the World Wide Web became a big deal, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, why is that? Well, first of all, a lot of jobs have been lost because of the web. They've been replaced. You know, we've also had robotics, which are another one that you're replacing, you're putting people out of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think equally important is that on its own, the internet probably did increase productivity in this country, but all we did was counter it with massive levels of debt used for non-productive purposes and used largely for non-productive purposes, mm -hmm. which just further weighs on on uh, growth. You know, Lance, we can on productivity, Lance, we can also just look at AI. AI is not new. We've all been using Google Maps, Waze, 
all logistics companies. There's many uses of AI that have been out there for how long have we been using Google Maps and Waze? <laughs> Ten Six, years. seven years? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At, at, at least. And they've been used by the airline companies, train companies well longer than that. So where's the productivity growth from AI? We should have seen it already. And again, productivity growth just continues to slip. And, you know, again, why is that? Well, look at what the government did in 20, 2020 and 2021. Mm -hmm. They issued a massive amount of debt and all government debt basically boosts the economy at first and weighs on the economy second. So, again, did they completely offset more than offset AI? Will they? And, you know, in our minds, there's no reason to think that the government won't keep spending. That, that's what they do. That's, mm -hmm. you know, those trends are pretty dependable. They want to get elected. And then the other side of it is demographics. We're aging. We're not creating new families at the rate we used to. Right. And so is China. So is Japan. So is, you know, a good part of the developed world. We're aging. So we have older people that are more dependent on the economy, basically weighing on the economy and less new people coming into the economy to support it. Right. So, but you so know, the combination of debt and demographics appears and has been for the last 20 plus years to offsetting any kind of technological pro uh, progress that we've been making. Right. And yeah, I think uh, and I think there's a, a bigger factor with AI, which is even potentially more insidious towards productivity than what we saw with the Internet. And, you know, again, it's, it's interesting, you know, my dad, when when I was growing up back in the, the early 70s, my dad, this is when robotics were really first starting to come in. And, you know, we were replacing welding machines at, you know, or welders at auto plants with these robotic welding machines, et cetera. And my dad was like, well, eventually robots are going to take, take away my job. And it took about 20 years, but a robot did actually take his job at work <laughs> where he managed a bursting warehouse. And so they didn't really need him more because the robot would do all the, 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 do everything he was doing. Um, so, you know, he predicted this was going to be the case. And it just took a while to get there. But the difference with AI versus just the Internet is the Internet's great, right? We can go online, we can order stuff, and you know, we've certainly changed the, the way that we work and, and the way that we do things because of the Internet. Um, we've developed whole new industries like Uber, um, you know, Grubhub and Uber Eats and these type of things, which are low-wage paying jobs. But we did create those jobs in that area because of our ability to order stuff on the Internet and have it delivered to our house. So that was that was an innovation, but it wasn't a great innovation because it didn't create high wage paying jobs. It created a bunch of low lower wage paying jobs. The threat of AI that I think most people have overlooked is that it it can replace in theory. Now, whether it will or not is different. Again, you know, this whole that whole big rush we had for chat GPT has kind of died down now. Um but, you know, all of a sudden you're talking about AI that can replace engineers and architects and lawyers and, you know, a variety of other uh, Screen journalists, writers. screenwriters, et cetera. Um, those are wait, low wage paying jobs. Uh, so, but, you know, the you know, it's it's there is a threat here from AI that it can actually start to reduce the labor requirements in higher wage paying areas, which isn't great for economic growth. Right. So this, you know, this productivity boost we may get. By using artificial intelligence, yes, it will make companies more productive, 
but it will reduce the amount of labor that you need in some of these higher wage paying areas. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely going to be the case because, again, the old argument is always and this was the argument for the Internet is like, well, for every job that's lost, you know, for, you know, whatever, they'll just go get a job programming computers. And, and back in 2000, I don't know if you remember this, Mike, but back in 1999, 2000, 2001, when I first started doing radio with Brent Clanton, um, we were talking about on the radio at the time, people were leaving their jobs to go be web, web developers and they were getting you know, Mercedes as a signing bonus and $100,000. If you knew how to program the web, people were paying you astronomical amounts of money to come be a web designer. And now that salary range is very low. Right. You know, you don't see that anymore. Um, and so this is going to be the same case with AI. There'll be this initial upshot where AI programmers will get paid a lot of money. Everybody will move into that job format. Everybody will want to become a programmer for AI. And you'll get a supply demand imbalance of too many people wanting to be in that area for the demand and wages will fall and salaries will fall. And that's just ultimately always the case of how it works, because that's just the way the economies work over time. But you know, again, when you start looking at the jobs that that potentially displaces, that further weighs on this argument that productivity growth will be higher in the future. I suspect that might actually be a little bit lower. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, certain industries, sectors, certain people will be more productive. Mm -hmm. But again, as a whole, you it's not just technology, it's debt, it's demographics. Yeah. And those are big headwinds. Well, and they say if you want a stronger economy, have more babies. And that's the one thing that we're certainly not doing today is <laughs> the child birth rate continues to decline. All right, quick break. We're going to come back, uh, wrap up the show. Where are the market's going to from here, right? We'll talk a little bit about the markets, uh, portfolio positioning, uh, kind of what's happening. And we'll cover all that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to this morning and uh good morning to our chat everybody there's about 410 people watching right now so thank you all for tuning in and watching the show we appreciate it as always uh, be sure and click the uh little bell icon to get notified and make sure you're subscribed we appreciate you subscribing to our channel as we continue to try to grow this thing slowly but surely <laughs> so markets this morning um you know so we talked about on tuesday we wrote an article talking about why we were kind of set up for a rally and again so you know we have to go back to july uh, we were talking about the need that, the, you know, the market had gotten very extended. We had five months of gains and, you know, a bit of a correction was needed. And it was and it's always interesting, right? It's always very interesting. So in July, I'm getting emails from people about why stocks can only go up because I was, you know, I was talking kind of ad nauseum on the show saying, hey, look, we're due for a three to five percent correction. And I was getting emails from people like, ah, we're not going to get a correction. So I'm going to go higher from here because of ABCDE, right? Whatever. Um 
And then, of course, when we had the 5% correction, then I'm getting all these emails saying, well, the bull market's now over, the bear market's back, and this can only go down lower from here. Um, the extremes always kind of tell you where you are, right? Um, and when you start getting extreme views in one direction or the other, that's a really good indicator. Um, and my email list is a great kind of <laughs> indicator, contrarian indicator of where we are in the markets. Um, so again, you know, not surprising. We're, we, you know, we're, we're kind of working on this rally. And the question is, is, is really kind of where do we go to from here? Now, one of the things to be aware of, though, is, is that this remains and has remained a very narrow rally really since the beginning of the year. There was a, there was a brief moment in June and July that we saw some rotation kind of into the other areas of the market. And Mike and I had talked a little bit previously about sector rotations and these type of things. And, and so for a moment, we did start to see, uh, as an example, the uh, S&P equal weight index saw some signs of life, and we actually saw some increases in the equal weight index, but that's mostly gone away now. And we're kind of really back to this mega cap driven passive flow of money into the markets, right? It's been Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, NVIDIA, really holding up the market and really kind of driving the market. And in fact, in last weekend's newsletter, um, we, we wrote that, you know, if you take a look at the sector breakdown between what's performing above, or what's outperforming the market this year, which is technology, communications, and discretionary, and, and let's, let's define those three, right? Technology, Apple, and Microsoft. You know, discretionary, Amazon, and Tesla. <laughs> so communications is Google and Meta. So, you know, again, those are the seven stocks. Those are the ones really kind of driving the markets. And if you strip out those three indexes, Right. Just if you took those, sorry, those three sectors, if you take those three sectors out, everything else is performing far worse than the actual S&P 500. So instead of the S&P being up 15 percent for the year, we'd probably be only up maybe one or two percent for the year. That's that's the differential that's being created by these mega cap stocks within the overall index. And that's a tough fight to fight. Right. I mean, you know, being a value investor, being diversified in your portfolio, doing the right things that you should do in terms of managing risk has, has been really tough this year because you're not getting paid to manage risk. You're not being paid to be conservative. You're not being paid to be cautious. You're being paid to chase where the passive flows are pushing stocks. Because, you know, remember, as we've talked about before, 30 cents of every dollar goes into those 10 stocks, right? So every time somebody buys an ETF, 30 cents of that goes into those top 10 stocks. And that continues to drive it. So this morning, people, yes, are buying NVIDIA stock, but they're also buying XLK. They're buying, you know, uh, um, you know, ETFs that are replicating AI, whatever it is. And NVIDIA is the number one holding. So all that money is going to flow into NVIDIA this morning because of that report. So, again, that's what makes it uh, that's what makes it a challenge in managing money. And again, this is just what's happening now. This is an anomaly that we live in at the moment. It will change. But see, that's the challenge of investing is navigating these periods where you have these anomalies in the markets that make it difficult to adhere to a strategy or discipline. And this is this is the thing that we talk about a lot here on the show. But but again, you know, on Tuesday, we were writing about, hey, we're going to be ready for a rally. So we're getting this rally. The question is, where does it go to from here? That's this is going to be the big challenge. And, and look, this could all change on Monday. If over the weekend, Jerome Powell comes out and says, you know what? 
we're going to hike rates to six, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be a problem for the markets. There is a very interesting dichotomy to the markets at the moment, which is what's happening with interest rates and technology stocks. Technology stocks are dependent on growth, economic growth. They're dependent on growth of earnings, growth of revenue. And if interest rates are high, right, that slows down economic growth, which would impact earnings. And so we look at technology stocks as what we call a long-duration asset. They're overvalued. They're expensive. They're dependent upon growth of earnings to justify those valuations. NVIDIA, 40 times sales. You need a long time of very strong sales growth to justify buying 40 times price to sales today, right? That's just, that's just a function of the, of the math. Interest rates deter that economic growth, which will deter that sales growth, right? So there should be a non-correlation, basically, between interest rates, higher interest rates, and tech stocks. In other words, if interest rates are high, technology stocks should be selling off. That's not been the case this year. And so the question to Mike is, is Mike, is this time different or is it just a delayed effect? Maybe the technology investors are smarter than the bond market investors. Maybe they know that rates are going way back down and that this blip higher in rates is transitory. And that, you know, again, if you're looking at a 10-year bond or if you're looking at NVIDIA and you're looking at the next 30 years of sales, you can't really focus on the next three months or six months. You have to focus on that whole time period. And maybe technology, you know, there's a lot of passive flows. And, and you know, but maybe some technology investors are saying, look, rates are going to be much lower. I'm not going to I'm not going to change all my models to make the 10 uh, year rate for the next 10 years, 4 uh, percent, you know, maybe for the next year. And then I have a feeling that rates will be lower. So, you know, maybe they figured out something that the bond market still hasn't figured out yet. Um, but you're right. I mean, a lot of this is passive and momentum and investors are buying what's going up. They're buying those seven stocks. And over the last week or two, we've kind of slipped, slowly slipped back into the magnificent seven or the ones that go up and everything else just kind of lingers every day. And, you know, the question we're facing now is that is that going to be the trend for the next month, two, three months? Or is this just a little blip around NVIDIA? Uh, and that, you know, that's just something we'll see. And will Jerome Powell have an opinion on that? You know, he may say rates are going to 6%. I think the risk that no one's talking about, and I, I don't suspect he'll say something, but it's possible that he says something about the stock market. The, the Fed has acknowledged that the stock market drives the economy, ergo it drives inflation. And the Fed has not said boo about the stock market in you know, a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So will he say, will they try to temper the stock market? Will they try to actually push stock prices down or at least keep them where they're at? To Because it's another tool, in their opinion, not necessarily everyone's opinion, but their opinion to limit economic activity. You know, people feel richer when their stocks are up, they spend more. It, there's a lot of logic to their reasoning. Well, if stocks are down a little or stocks are flat, maybe they won't feel as rich and they won't spend as much. And that will help them fight their war against inflation. So that's, you know, it's not on, I don't think it's on anyone's radar. Something to kind of think about as Powell speaks. I think it's tomorrow morning. It's tomorrow morning he speaks? I think at 10 Eastern or 11 yeah. Eastern time. 
So, yeah, no, but it'll, it'll be very interesting because, again, you know, uh, to your point, you know, he was making comments last year about the stock market and talking about valuations are rich. And, you know, he was in, in early last year right. in 2022 when they first started hiking interest rates. He had made several statements about, you know, valuations. And, and what you and I even talked about was is that what he wanted was a control burn in asset prices to right. get prices lower, which occurred, right? We were down 25% at the at the trough last year. So we did right. kind of get this control burn of asset prices. But, you know, what he was wanting was to drag that down, get consumer confidence down to, you know, to quell this inflationary pressure. The, the, the question is, is has, you know, is he happy with the result, I guess? Is 3% inflation good enough, right? Because the one thing that he spoke about numerous times was not saying, I want inflation at 2%. He said, I want a clear trajectory of inflation back towards our 2% target, and which we clearly have. We've gone from 9 to 3, right? So there's a clear trajectory back to 2% at this point. And I guess the question for him is, is that good enough? And I think, I think no. And the reason... I do is because he talks a lot about the 70s and early 80s where inflation peaked in the double digits, came down to, you know, whatever the prevailing rate was, three, four percent, popped back up. And this happened several times. And I think that he's scared to death that that inflation is intransitory, that it's not, you know, that this episode of transit of uh, inflation is not is not he's scared to death it's permanent or or that it's going to last a decade and i think he really wants it down to two percent he said as much he's not happy that you know he, he's thrilled that inflation is back to three percent but every comment he's made is he wants it lower and that's why he continues on his higher for longer and threatening to do more rate increases because he wants it at two or you know probably even below two for a period yeah it's all great. Uh, so, until, it's all great until something breaks, though, right? Which it will. But <laughs> so, all right, that wraps up the show for today. Mike, thanks so much. Uh, get by the website. Um, actually, this weekend's article is talking a little bit of, uh, about you know the risk to equities, which is higher interest rates and slowing economic growth, and why that that's potentially problematic as we get into 2024. Um, but again, that's all in the newsletter this weekend. So make sure you subscribe for email delivery. We'll send it to you on Saturday morning when we get it done. Um, also, you get our weekly uh, commentary as well on our technical Tuesdays, our macro Fridays. It's You'll you'll have all the information. It's all at the website, of course, absolutely free. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails. And of course, uh, yes, John, you should really start sending me more emails. <laughs> Happy to talk to you. Anyway, all right. Have a great day. See you next time.